From NPR News in Washington, I'm Ray Suarez, and this is Talk of the Nation. It all started with a prince who figured there was more to existence than the good life. Living a pure and simple life with your desires under control, the very breath you take in control, all on the way to a state called Nirvana. For more than 2,000 years, the distilled wisdom of a teacher named Gautama has been one of the central writings of Buddhism. We continue our sacred text series with a discussion of the sayings of Buddha, the Dhammapada, the path of righteousness and truth. Talk of the Nation, the great sacred text series continues after this news. In University, this is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Talk of the Nation, I'm Ray Suarez. We're continuing our sacred text series this hour with a look at the Dhammapada, the sayings of Buddha. These ideas about living are some 2,500 years old. Attributed to Siddhartha Gautama, called the Buddha, tradition says he was a prince, raised in luxury, who renounced the world to search for the answers to the sufferings of life. The Buddha began communities of monks and nuns to continue his teachings, but they were orally transmitted for centuries. The sayings contained in the Dhammapada were probably not written down in one place until five or six hundred years after the death of Gautama in a language called Pali, a derivative of Sanskrit. The Dhammapada, today's text, is probably the best known of all Pali writings, 423 sayings, which together form a path of righteousness and truth. That's what Dhammapada means. The sayings range from the kind of observation, which seems true and wise on its face, to more opaque sayings, which need to be read a couple of times over, just to see if you understand what it's getting at. Some are beautiful, some amusing, some ring with hope, while others can take a pessimistic view of the physical life. Here are some examples which caught my eye. Victory breeds hatred, the defeated sleep in misery. One who is calmed down sleeps in comfort, having given up victory and defeat. Here's another. There is no fire like passion, no bad luck like hatred. There is no misery like physical existence, no happiness higher than tranquility. Or this one. Sorrow arises from desire. Fear arises from desire. For someone free from desire, there is no sorrow. How could there be grief? There are 303 million Buddhists worldwide a couple of million students of the religion here in the United States. Today we bring you another installment in our series of some of the world's great sacred texts, The Sayings of Buddha, the Dhammapada. Joseph Goldstein is a teacher and founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and author of Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. Welcome to Talk of the Nation. Thanks, Ray. Glad to be here. And Robert Thurman is a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University and author of Essential Tibetan Buddhism. Good to have you with us. Uh, nice to be here, Ray. Our number in Washington, 800-989-8255, 800-989-TALK. Join us with your questions. If you've always been curious about this faith, these teachings, but have never really had a chance to look into them, your observations, if you've stuck your toe in the water and formed some ideas and opinions about it, 
800-848-8255. Well, Robert Thurman, uh, taken in isolation, these 423 sayings, do they form um, a good handbook for the faith if you read nothing else? Uh, yeah, I think they do, uh, Ray. They, they have a lot of good practical advice on how to live and how to calm the mind down, how to orient the life towards um, supreme happiness, really, which is what everyone wants, I think. So I think that taken together, they're pretty complete, actually. If you were to talk to a believer, uh, would that person take it on face value that, yes, indeed, Buddha said these things, these are direct quotes, because I know they weren't written down until a long time after he's said to have said them. Right. Uh, yes, I think people would take that pretty much on faith. Uh, we have to re realize that in ancient India, the art of memorization was a very highly cultivated art, and the uh, other Indian texts like the Vedas and other sacred scriptures of Hinduism were preserved by memory for many, many centuries, even after they had writing. Actually, in Buddha's time, they did have writing and merchants wrote, but there was a tradition that sacred scripture or sacred sayings shouldn't be written because they should be kept by memory. And people, it was a routine for people to have by memory, memorize hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages, even thousands of pages. Still, some Buddhist countries today, uh, people do that just normally. So I don't think it's unrealistic that these very well might have been the sayings of the Buddha, and I think all Buddhists of all types will accept these as the authentic sayings of Buddha. Joseph Goldstein, uh, you have a lot of visitors at your center who probably come in uh, as adults, having grown up uh, reading other religions' scripture. Will you, uh, during their training and during the time that they're with you, uh, have them read these sayings or, or use them as uh, sort of prescriptions or, or uh, guides to the mind of the Buddha on, on different parts of life? Well, most of the people who come to our center come for intensive meditation practice. And so uh, it's done in silence and there's not reading or studying done at that time. Uh, a lot of the talks that the teachers would give would draw on these texts because they really do contain in very simple language uh, some of the most profound truths of the teachings. Um, we have, a, we have a study center, kind of a sister organization, where people would come and actually study these texts, uh, both in Pali uh, and in English. Well, I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of the, the role that, uh, that this text plays in the sort of day-to-day. -day. Uh, is it cited? Uh, would, would somebody quote it and, and say, well... Here's something to think about, because they seem to be uh, observations and in some other chapters uh, sort of practical advice, but they don't form together a sort of, they don't, there's no creation tale as there, there is in other faiths' sacred texts. There's no um, laws, you must do this and you must do that. So uh, they may strike someone not schooled in this who's coming to it uh, as an adult, as a little different from anything they've experienced before. Well, I think, I think it actually is different, and it uh, signals what in some way might be unique about Buddhism, that it's, it's really not a system of belief. Uh, the Buddha was addressing a very basic problem of suffering in our lives, suffering in the world, and how to alleviate that suffering. And so a lot of the uh, verses in the Dhammapada, which were spoken by the Buddha 
throughout his lifetime. It was not one continuous uh, text. Uh, a lot of these verses are really instructions for what to do, how to purify the mind, how to live happily in the world. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's really a guide. It's a guide to doing. It's a path of practice rather than simply a text to study or to memorize. Now, Robert Thurman, there are different schools of Buddhism and, and uh, different, I guess, sects. Would that be a, a fair mm -hmm. use of the word sect? Um, mm -hmm. Does everybody give the same level of, uh, of authority and centrality to the Dhammapada? Oh, I, th I think so. Um, as the translator of uh, the text that we've been looking at together in preparing for this uh, says, there are, uh, he calls the, the tradition that makes this text most central, that is based in Pali, he calls it the lesser journey, and the other one he calls the, um, the greater journey, but uh, which would, you could say would be two different divisions of Buddhism as it spread through Asia. And then there's the uh, esoteric Buddhism and so forth. But every single one would take this, uh, these texts as fundamental. And um, they would consider them sort of the foundational guidelines. For example, the famous verse, not to do any evil, to accomplish good, to purify one's own mind. This is the teaching of the enlightened. That verse is sort of known by heart by any Buddhist that I've ever met from any country. And, uh, you know, it's completely unexceptional to all of them. I think uh, the word, one thing you said about the word sect, I think a sect is defined as a division within a religion in history where people on the two sides of the division do not think of each other as members of the same religion. So it's a pretty rigid difference, you know. And I think most of the differences in Buddhism are rather, we might call them schools or orders or different groups like that, because almost all of them do accept that the other one is following an interpretation of the Buddha's teaching, uh, whether or not uh, they are you know, exactly in agreement with all of the elements of their practice. A key point is, precisely based on what Joseph said, is that Buddhism is not simply sort of a religious structure of belief that you have to just adopt and hold as a formula or something like that. Buddha himself taught that such rigid formula could tend to actually cause you trouble rather than calm your mind or, or help you reduce suffering. And therefore, Buddhism always was a method, and Buddha's teaching always varied according to the needs of different people that he talked to. So from the very beginning, B Buddhism had to cope with the phenomenon of diversity, and therefore they were much more tolerant than we've seen in the history of Western religions from the beginning. Robert Thurman yeah. joins us from the New York Bureau. He's a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia, author of Essential Tibetan Buddhism and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Joseph Goldstein joins us from WBUR in Boston, teacher and founder at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and author of Insight Meditation, The Experience of Insight, and Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. Our number in Washington, 800-989-8255. Joseph Goldstein, you were going to say? Yeah, uh, something just following up on what uh, Bob was saying. As Buddhism has evolved through different cultures, I think something very interesting is happening now as it's coming to the West, uh, because there's a tremendous growing interest now, and the different Buddhist traditions are all funneling into the West, from Southeast Asia, from Tibet, uh, from Japan, and perhaps for the first time in the history of Buddhism, there's really a very active cross cross-fertilization of the different traditions, which may actually be evolving into what we could call American Buddhism. And it's quite an exciting time in that regard. People are practicing uh, in these different lineages. Well, let's, 
let's turn that very idea around and go back to the countries where Buddhism is coming from to arrive in the United States. Uh, it's been said by sociologists and scholars that uh, the modern understanding of the Bible is what shapes a lot of Western societies. Uh, if you read uh, Weber and Marx and, and the, the things that they have to say about industrial England or the newly industrializing United States, what would we find in worldview and day-to-day -day life and expectations and understanding of, of what life's supposed to be about if we go back to a largely Buddhist society with a copy of the Dhammapada tucked under our arm? Is it going to be a different place from... Uh, New York or uh, or Ames, Iowa? Well, I think it probably is. One of the, one of the great joys of practicing uh, meditation in Asian cultures, in a Buddhist society, was being immersed uh, in the Buddhist cultural system where there was a tremendous outpouring uh, of generosity and valuing of spiritual practice. So, for example, we would be at the monasteries in Asia practicing and everything would be offered freely. People would come... Uh, offering food for hundreds or sometimes thousands of people, either singly or collectively, a whole village. And so being in that environment where the spiritual uh, practice is so valued was a tremendous inspiration. But Robert Thurman, these uh, countries also have uh, prime ministers and parliaments. They have armies and telephone systems. Uh, they have all these things that uh, would seem to fly in the face of the... Uh, the admonition to simplify, to build sure. down. Sure. Well, that is the influence of modernity. You know, let's not forget that the Protestant ethic, uh, it did uh, drive the Industrial Revolution, which I think is what you were referring to in the modern reading of the Bible, uh, according to the theories of Max Weber. And the Industrial Revolution did create a lot of uh, inventions and machinery and a certain type of social organization in the West. But one of the aspects of that social organization was it created a great restlessness in the West. And uh, therefore, the people in the West sort of boiled up out of Europe and conquered the rest of the world. And uh, after conquering it, they took quite a lot of wealth away from it. And then they, and they had a tremendous impact on the cultures in those areas. I think, uh, on the other hand, Weber and his people and the sociologists have tended up to now to misunderstand the nature of Buddhist societies and think that they were unnecessarily sort of passive as far as technology and industry and what we would call the modern sense development goes. And I don't think they recognized accurately the true nature of sort of the Buddhist polity. In fact, uh, Buddhist societies had developed quite a lot in their own way, but just with a different set of priorities or values. That is to say, in a Buddhist society, the primary value is the individual's inner state. That is to say, the whole of society is organized with the, with, the, with the goal in mind of having individuals use the maximum amount of their lifetime to educate themselves spiritually, mentally, and so on, to the maximum benefit that they can, or the maximum evolutionary level they can achieve in that life. All of the infrastructure development, economic development, agricultural production, industrial production, artisanal production, is all subservient to that, that goal of the education of individuals. And um, 
within that light, Buddhist societies were highly sophisticated and refined. They, they had big monastic systems where they allowed individuals to escape from normal obligations, you know, taxpayers, paying off the bank, mortgages, raising children, and to devote their life to personal self-cultivation and education. And they had a very balanced economy, balanced population, and really rather happy and pleasant societies, in fact, and very wealthy ones, in fact. And um, the imbalancing of those societies through westernization ha is now creating the huge population explosion in Asia that we see that in fact threatens the entire world. And uh, so it's a very complicated issue to look at the issue of Buddhist society versus modern society. And maybe if we can take certain lessons from Buddhism, we can recover an emphasis on the interior quality of human life and get a kind of rebalancing of our own life goal so that we can get out of our excessive materialism, you know, consumerism, militarism and things that do threaten our, the life of everyone on earth, I think. Robert Thurman and Joseph Goldstein are with me this hour. It's part two of our Great Sacred Text series. We're looking at the sayings of the Buddha, the Dhammapada. 800-989-8255 is the number. Stan joins us now from Chicago. Hiya, Stan. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Hi, you've Stan. touched on various aspects of, of, of my question, which is um, with its emphasis on meditation and, and internal states, Mm -hmm. Does Buddhism um, does Buddhism come into conflict with our desire in the West to perfect the world? What I guess in in my Judaism would be called perfecting the world. The the desire to act in the world in a social way to cure what we call social problems in the West, um, problems of inadequate housing or not enough food or you know any of these sort of larger issues that we face, and we feel as though we have some responsibility as people and as religious people to, to, to take some action in the world. Does Buddhism, is Buddhism in conflict with that? And, and if not, how do they suggest that we go about doing that? Well, I think that, to... yeah, yeah um, I think that really raises an important aspect of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, often the, the teachings are described as having two great wings, uh, that of wisdom and that of compassion. And as we grow in wisdom through kind of the inner work that we do in spiritual practice, then the natural outcome of that would be a manifesting compassionate action in the world. And that takes many forms. There's no, there's no hierarchy of compassionate action. A few examples, though, of people who are very much involved now in addressing some of the problems uh, in Southeast Asia is a very wonderful Cambodian monk, Venerable Gosananda, who was recently nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and he's been leading peace marches uh, in Cambodia as a way of trying to get a ban on the landmines, which of course are, are throughout Cambodia, you know, and, and trying to uh, bring awareness to this problem. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who you may know of, the great Vietnamese um, meditation master, peace activist, poet, also is, is very involved in social issues. So I think it's the natural expression, this, this compassionate activity for addressing the suffering uh, in the world and in ourselves is a natural outcome of the teachings. But isn't there also a tremendous emphasis on the self and repeated calls to uh, make yourself into an island, uh, to not be obsessed uh, with your children and your relatives and, and those sorts of things. I mean, I can, I can see where Stan's question sure, uh, no. comes from. Sure. Right. Well, actually, it's just, 
Oh, Actually, it's just the opposite, Ray, because there's, uh, the great emphasis in Buddhism is on realizing selflessness, you know, and coming to that end of self-centered striving. And it's quite interesting, as we become uh, more egoless through our practice, then there is this natural connection uh, with all of the sense of interconnectedness. Right, and maybe if I could add one thing, that uh, the, uh, the Buddhist emphasis, the Buddhists would definitely not conflict with any of those things you mentioned, Stan. And uh, Buddhism had, the Buddhist societies in Asia over many, many millennia had a good, good uh, history of delivering a fairly good quality of life to large numbers of people, which is how Buddhism became so popular that it spread all over Asia, including very different kinds of countries like China and Mongolia, Tibet, uh, Southeast, you know, Vietnam, or even Indonesia Buddhism had spread to in the early period. And uh, it did that because it did have a good record of trying to help people out with their problems. But the key point, and I think which Joseph was, was, was getting at too, key point is that the method of how to produce happiness in beings is perhaps a little different emphasis. Uh, there's a famous Buddhist verse um, by Shantideva that says, if you don't like stepping on sharp things when you walk barefoot outside, you have two choices. You can put shoe leather over the whole ground, or you can make a shoe for your foot, <laughs> one or the other. And the Buddhist approach is to sort of make a shoe for the foot. You know, that is to say, it's, your, it's the mind of people that is the key factor in whether they're happy or not happy. Someone can be in a palace and be very dissatisfied and restless and become a drug addict and become nasty and mean and they can have domestic violence or whatever in the wealthiest possible place. People in a poor place can sometimes be very loving and have a nice family life and have good peace of mind. So the key factor is not only the external infrastructure, what the housing is, what the food is, etc. The key factor is what is the inner attitude of the people. So Buddhism's emphasis has always been on cultivating a good inner attitude in people for, so that they concentrate on developing themselves, educating themselves to learn selflessness, and then to voluntarily wish to be good to other people. But Stan, Stan was talking about seeing his own faith, and he mentioned that he's a Jew, right. as a call right. to social action. Right. And as I read the Dhammapada, uh, in places there's almost the exact opposite of a call to social action. When you say that um, uh, the uh, epitome of selflessness and the, uh, the way that you demonstrate that you've reached a point where you don't need material things is to become a mendicant, uh, mm -hmm. I guess a good rendering of that would be a beggar. Uh, right. In a world where everyone became beggars, there'd be nobody to beg from. Right. Well, that's true, but that in, in, in India that never did happen. You know, and it's uh, uh, very few people who are willing to do, dispense with property in this thing. But let me ask Stan, let me ask you a question, a counter question. You say that Judaism is a call to social action. Well, what would you say about God's command to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? What would you call that? Uh, I would call that a very curious biblical story, which has enormous implications philosophically and psychologically. Um, I think it's a very curious story, and I'm very exactly. interested but, I mean, in it, doesn't and I it mean, continue to learn, learn about it. Sure. Doesn't it mean that, that the, the first commandment of the religion is to love and respect God? And that yes, the individual's that is, relationship with God, then of course, once, God, once, once Abraham showed his willingness, God, of course, didn't want such a vicious thing to happen, and he stayed his hand, right? Right. But the point is that it, it, what that shows is that in order to accomplish the call to social action and to actually have effective social action, the individual has to be motivated by a higher 
organization of their mind, a sort of higher type of selflessness. Right, right. I understand. In that case, selflessness in God. In the Buddhist case, selflessness through realizing the true nature of the self. So I that, that you know, and there's I agree. these let, let, let Stan go, uh, Bob. The, the, the mm -hmm. question for me is, at what point do I acknowledge my own imperfections and say, I, I have to go out in the world and act and try and, and do something in spite of my own lack of having reached a state of nirvana. I mean, I would mm -hmm. very much like to reach a, a, a state of nirvana. I don't know that I can do it by uh, simply accepting the world as it is or whether I have a call to, to somehow change the world and if that in somehow does not actually bring me closer to a state of grace or, or to put it in terms of a Christian theology I suppose but um, do you understand I don't think there's oh, a, sure. I don't think there's a need to polarize these two issues because uh, in my understanding uh, our inner work and our outer work really uh, interweave uh, throughout Absolutely. one's life you know and we go through periods of retreat and going inward to uh, create a deeper understanding of ourselves in the world and then we go, we cycle out into the world to be of whatever service we can. Uh, so I see these two as supporting each other rather than as in conflict or different choices. Stan called us from Chicago. Joseph Goldstein and Robert Thurman are with me. You're listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News. Joy's with us now from Watertown, Massachusetts. Hiya, Joy. Hi, how you doing? Okay. Um, I'm calling about a couple of different issues. Um, First of all, I think we haven't really discussed whether Buddhism is a religion. Um, I studied Buddhism in school. Um, actually, in college, I took a course, and we had someone in the class who was Chinese who was a Buddhist. And it was interesting because she um, talked about the belief in her Buddhism in heaven and hell, um, in angels, um, bodhisattvas, and things like that. Right. Um, and it was interesting to me because I think Americans really approach Buddhism uh, much more in a more intellectual way, and I think it creates almost um, an elitist attitude in that just most people who study Buddhism, I think, um, you know, tend to be more intellectual. The, the appeal of it is to the idea of going inward and the meditative aspects of it, um, and we don't have an acknowledgement of the um, other aspects of Buddhism, as this, you know, Chinese woman had discussed the whole ideas of heaven and hell, etc., um, I mean, I don't know if that's a truer Buddhism or less of a true Buddhism. And also, can an American um, really be a Buddhist? Well, Joy, your two questions have brought America to the edge of its collective seat, and we're going to take a we're going to take a break, and they're just going to have to wait till after the break to find out the answer to those questions because those are two very good questions. Excellent questions. Uh, Joy joined us from Watertown. We're talking about. The Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha this hour in our sacred text series. My guests are Joseph Goldstein and Robert Thurman. You can join us at 800-989-8255. You can email us at totn at npr.org. Or you can just send us a letter at Talk of the Nation Letters, 635 Massachusetts Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 2001. Thirty-three minutes past the hour, you're listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News. From Boston. Welcome back to Talk of the Nation. I'm Ray Suarez. Today we're continuing our series on sacred texts with a discussion about the Dhammapada, the sayings of Buddha. My guests are Joseph Goldstein, a teacher and founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and Robert Thurman, a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University in New York. 
And just before the break, Joy asked two very good questions. She asked, can Americans really be Buddhists? And is this a religion in the way we usually think of religions? Why don't you take them uh, one, one, each one of you can take one of those. Uh, well, I'd, like to take a, I'd like to take a crack at, at it. Uh, it really goes back to um, one of the stanzas from the Dhammapada, which Bob mentioned earlier on. Uh, that is, to avoid what's unwholesome, to do what is good, to purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Uh, and so then there's a question of how can we accomplish this? And there's a great range of skillful means. Uh, some of the skillful means involve paths of devotion. Some involve meditation techniques of uh, strengthening concentration and inquiry. Uh, and all of these can really serve different people at different times. Um, I don't think it's a question of, of there being one method or one skillful means for everybody. The real, the real essence of Buddhism and the question of whether it's a religion is about this purifying of the mind of those forces which create suffering in ourselves, in the world, forces like greed or fear or hatred or envy or jealousy. And that's the work to be accomplished. We do it in a, in a wide variety of ways. So in that sense, I think Americans, of course, can be Buddhist because we have the same mind and the same uh, qualities in it that are conducive either to happiness or to suffering. Robert Thurman? Uh, yeah, um, I, well, I think I agree with everything Joseph said. Um, I think we can say it both ways. Certainly your friend uh, Joy in the class, uh, the young Chinese uh, per, uh, lady, was correct in that Buddhists are very spiritual in most of their countries. That is to say, they believe in gods, they believe in, in heavens, and they believe in hell. They very importantly believe in former and future life. You know, they believe that they were reborn previously in the past in other life forms and that they will be reborn in the future. And so, um, Buddhists uh, were long known as atheists in Western descriptions of Buddhism because Buddhists do not believe that there's one God who is in control of the entire universe. They think that's illogical. But they have many gods who have a lot of different powers and abilities and you sort of pray to them. There's angels, there's demons, there's all kinds of things. So in that sense, it has all of the elements of a religion except it doesn't have the one element of that belief in the, the monotheistic element of the belief in one God who created everything. And um, as far as Americans being Buddhists, I think Joseph and I are the living proof that two Americans can be sort of, in Joseph's case, a good Buddhist, in my case, a half-baked Buddhist, because I'm a professor. <laughs> but I am a Buddhist of sorts, you know. And so I'd it like is to add, possible. Uh, <laughs> what, you I'd like to add more? one more thing in here. Uh, sometimes, so. sometimes when we talk about meditation and the Buddhist emphasis on mind, there's a misunderstanding because of... Uh, this word in English, mind, and we tend to think of it as being intellectual or associated with the brain. But, oh, yeah, that's uh, mind. but really, the Buddhist notion of mind is much larger than that. It, it, you could think of it maybe including the heart-mind, or heart-mind-spirit. Uh, it has to do with the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness, and all the emotions and feelings. Everything is contained within it. And uh, interestingly, in many Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same. They don't make that split or division. Uh, right. So when we speak of purifying the mind, it's, it's really a question of purifying our whole being. Yeah, that's well, really good. And there's one last point I could make, Joy, which is that and, and from another aspect, you could say Buddhism isn't a religion the way other religions are in that it doesn't uh, ask people to remain with faith. 
That is to say, one can believe in the benevolent Buddhas or the gods, or the angels, whatever, for future life, virtue. That's good to do up to a point. But then the Buddha insisted that people, human beings, ordinary ones, not just an elite, but ordinary human beings had the ability to understand directly their own reality. And that is that, and it is that understanding that really makes them free of suffering and makes them happy. And so there's a very strong emphasis on education and on science, on knowing your own nature, and that when you do know your own nature, you will be happy and free of suffering. And that, in a way, is not really a religious thing. It's more an educational thing or a scientific thing, and that is definitely a dimension of all kinds of Buddhism. Joy in Watertown, thanks a lot for your call. We're joined now by Yvonne Rand, a Zen priest and meditation teacher at the Goat in the Road Dharma Center in Muir Beach, California. Welcome, Yvonne. Thank you. Good morning. Well, what Hi, is... Yvonne. Hi, Bob. Hi, Joseph. <laughs> Hi, Yvonne. <laughs> well, one, one of the things uh, that Americans, one of the labels that Americans are used to hearing, uh, seeing in their newspapers, uh, hearing in discussions of the popular culture, is... Uh, the references to Zen Buddhism. Uh, why don't you tell us what that is and uh, talk about the role uh, or relate the Dhammapada, which is what we're taking a look at this hour, to being a Zen follower? Well, the, uh, the Zen tradition has a focus on uh, bringing the cultivations from meditation practice into the details of ordinary life. Um, the classical reference being a bringing meditation states into the activity of chopping wood and carrying water. Um, in our context, the details of ordinary daily life. And not only having the extension of one's meditation practice into ordinary daily life, but uh, using the events of daily life as the occasion for cultivation. And uh, particularly the school of Zen that I have studied and been trained in, uh, that emphasis is very strong. And the teachers that I've studied with have emphasized the kind of pragmatic uh, side of uh, Zen meditation practice. And so in that regard, the use of the Dhammapada uh, quotations is extremely useful as um, verses, uh, brief uh, verses that uh, become pointers for focusing on uh, the way of um, transforming ordinary daily life uh, into the path for the cultivation of the mind, of the heart, of becoming the kind of person who by uh, one's very existence in the world is of benefit to not only oneself, but those around, around that person and the world itself in terms of the environment and all of that. Is there much emphasis on scripture? Would people uh, read a particularly uh, naughty passage to each other and, and try to uh, get to the, the essence of its meaning? I, I was looking at this earlier today and came across, Homes are miserable hard to leave, hard to enjoy, hard to live in. <laughs> Living with the uncongenial is miserable. The vagrant is beset by misery. So let no one become a vagrant. Let no one be dogged by misery. I'll bet you could have an hour out of that. Uh, if yeah, you were, absolutely. <laughs> at the time. absolutely. And in fact, um, I've used the Dhammapada text as a source of 
teaching material to just take one or two verses and just um, work together in unpacking that verse as a source of guidance about how one pays attention to what leads to suffering in my life this morning and what leads to some easing of that suffering. And the, the spirit of the Buddha's teachings are so pervasive throughout um, this text. That's extremely useful text to be used in that way. But I also have students who will take a passage from the Dhammapada themselves and just use it as a kind of reference point, maybe writing it out every day, uh, reciting it to themselves five or six times during the course of the day, letting the verse work work you in, in uh, bringing your awareness to some area that you may not have been so awake to. Well, Yvonne, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yvonne Rand is a Zen priest and meditation teacher at the Goat in the Road Dharma Center in Muir Beach, California. Our number is 800-989-8255. And Carl has been waiting very patiently in Brooklyn. And patience, as we know from the Dhammapada, is a, a much-to-be-desired thing. Hiya, Carl. Hi, Ray. I'm very virtuous today. Thank you. I wondered if your guest... I'm sorry the last guest left, actually, because I was going to ask her about... Um, in Japanese, then, uh, masters would, I think, bring enlightenment to their initiates sometimes by thrashing them about the head with a stick or deafening them with a scream or a, a bell ringing. And I wondered um, if your guests could trace sort of the evolution or transmutation from this original text to, let's say, Tibetan magical practices such as shape-shifting or physically entering into uh, painted mandalas on the wall or uh, in Zen koans, saying such as, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Well, I could uh, speak to the second part. I think Bob will have to uh, <laughs> speak to entering <laughs> mystical mandalas. Uh, but if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him, I think it really refers to the notion of not creating some concept or idea of the Buddha in one's mind, and then as apart from oneself because then it really keeps us from our own direct realization of that state. And that's, that's really what uh, the teachings are all about. It's Isn't not there something really paradoxical, though, about annihilating the god? Well, I don't think that the Buddha is seen as a god, really. Uh, more, I think more accurately be seen, the Buddha is the expression of the essential nature of our own minds. Like Mr. Natural used to say in the comics, do dogs have Buddha nature? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just the thing is, you don't want to, you know, it's the God within is the thing, you know, the Buddha within you want to cleave to is what Joseph said, you know. So if you meet it outside of you, then you should, like, not allow it to stay separate from yourself. That's the whole point in, the, in that Zen story. And how about did, Yvonne leave? did Yvonne actually leave so she can't respond about the Zen? Yeah. Oh, Yvonne, she did. Leave. Yeah, Yvonne was just well, the thing us about, for a couple of minutes. Uh, the thing, maybe I should say one thing about the Zen thing, and that is that, uh, you know, the Zen masters uh, who dealt with their disciples, sometimes by harsh means, uh, which then attracted everyone's attention, and as you say, the deafening shout or the, the hit with the stick or something, with producing enlightenment of the disciple. Those are rare, exceptional uh, interactions. In, in other words, what people kind of forget is that that same Zen master had probably seen that same disciple a hundred times or a thousand times over ten years 
And then finally, at some point, when that disciple was in a certain intense state of needing to be distracted from some inner loop they were stuck in, he whacked them one. And that whack had a great beneficial effect because it was done with compassion and with sensitivity to the needs of the disciple. The masters don't just go around whacking everybody all the time, or they wouldn't have very many disciples. For but very there long. is running through a lot of different religions the idea that the, the flesh is a distraction, that it's base, that it. Uh, uh, sort of lures you away from keeping your your eye on the ball and uh, you know getting yeah, whacked right. in the head uh, maybe isn't that different from being a, a Shia flagellant or yeah, a, a one in a, in a monastic cell in uh, medieval Europe yeah that is a good point Ray you absolutely have a point but, uh, but we must also though remember that the Buddha specifically renounced any extreme mortification of the flesh you know he denounced he himself tried for five or six years starving himself and putting himself in harsh circumstances and he then denounced that as a valid method and he talked about the middle way between self-indulgence and self-destructiveness and that you had to give a balanced sort of comfortable way with your body not being obsessed with it but not being also against it you know you should you should bring it along with you type of thing was kind of his view uh, as far as uh, Carl's view about the mandalas and the Tibetan thing uh, that's a very complicated subject, Carl, which we don't have time to go into in great detail. But let's just say that uh, the concept of a mandala is the concept of a perfected environment, what uh, Stan in Chicago referred to as a perfected world, which uh, the bodhisattva, that is the, the person who wants to be a Buddha and who makes a vow to transform their whole universe into a perfectly happy universe, which is part of a lot of different forms of Buddhism. The mandala is sort of a very high-tech sort of virtual reality, you know, like uh, uh, internet way of trying to do that by creating an imaginative vision or a sort of holographic vision of a perfected world. And uh, it involves a whole complicated visualization type of practice, which is used at a certain stage with a view to the positive transformation of the environment as well as the positive transformation of the individual. So that's a sort of brief way of saying, of, of trying to give you some discussion of that. Carl joined us from Brooklyn, New York. Carl, thanks for your call. Joseph Goldstein joins us this hour from Boston. Robert Thurman's in the New York Bureau. We're continuing our Sacred Text series on the program, this week looking at the Dhammapada, the sayings of Buddha. I'm Ray Suarez. You're listening to Talk of the Nation from NPR News. Adrian's next in Los Angeles. Hi, Adrian. Hi, how you doing? Okay. Great. Um, Carl should also know that the Buddha uh, gave, in, uh, tr uh, gave this enlightenment to people also by picking a flower rather than just whacking them. Um, I, <laughs> the question, I think, goes back to the, uh, to the text itself. I, I have been a practicing Buddhist for the past 15 years in the uh, Nichiren Shoshu sect. Uh, we read a lot uh, in our studies about the 84,000 sutras and about a great number of Buddhas. Uh, specifically Amida Buddha and Tahoe Buddha, mm -hmm. uh, there is never really a reference to the Buddha as if uh, he was kind of a, an, an oriental uh, equivalent of, of, of the Christ. I was wondering if your, uh, if your guests could comment on that and, and where these 84,000 sutras come from uh, relative to, the, uh, to the, uh, the, uh, the book that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I well, think that we... Okay. Hey, go, go ahead, Bob. All right. Uh... The uh, 84,000 thing is a common uh, Buddhist number, and it refers to the sort of the image of the Buddha as a doctor. And just like a doctor has a whole bag full of different medicines, you know, herbs and things that they give for different sicknesses, and they don't just give one medicine to all 
for all diseases, but they give specific remedies for specific conditions. That's an ancient simile about the Buddha. And so the Buddha, they say the Buddha has 84,000 different Dharma remedies, or, uh, which they later are codified into texts. And uh, he teaches different individuals what they need to learn in order to liberate themselves from suffering. That's the first thing. Then the second thing, in Nichiren's form of Buddhism, which was based on the Lotus Sutra especially, although he embraced all of Buddhism, as most Buddhist teachers do, but that sutra was taught by Shakyamuni Buddha, which was the historical Buddha. And he's considered very important to Nichiren because he's the one who, in this historical period, taught uh, Buddhism for the you know for the successive generations afterwards. They, he also taught that there are infinite numbers of Buddhas in all different uh, dimensions and universes and galaxies, and those two things are not mutually contradictory. Adrian, I thanks, Rico. Uh, go ahead, Joseph. I was going to say I think that uh, understanding a little bit the meaning of the word Buddha might help, which yeah, really would, uh, sure would. Buddha, me Buddha means <laughs> awakened. And so it's not uh, limited to any one person in any one time. It's, right. it's really uh, the awakened state of mind. And in all the traditions of Buddhism, although they may have different um, ideas of um, multiple Buddhas uh, manifesting at the same time, they would all agree that over these vast periods of time, different Buddhas appear. That is, different beings uh, attain to this perfect enlightenment. But in the Dhammapada state. itself, uh, there's references to being able to hear Gotama, uh, a reference to what would be popularly referred to as the Buddha. Right, the historical yes, Buddha, as, what we call yeah. uh, right, right. I mean, they are giving a sort of uh, first among equals place to him no oh yeah he well, was he was he's our guy he was the one that yeah. was there and actually he was the one who was reciting these verses so uh naturally they would be referring to this right. this historical buddha right although he did say also that he had these verses from previous buddhas that buddhas always recite these verses he would say that kind of thing joe's right. with us now from chicago hiya joe hi um <clears throat> my question was um if the two gentlemen could recommend any introductory um, stuff on just the, the fundamental um, basics on Buddhism and also if they knew of something in Chicago, a center in Chicago that they could recommend for just further insight. It's a lot of Buddhists in Chicago, Joe. Yeah. There's yeah, several temples. Uh... Yeah, there's very many temples. I don't know Chicago that well. I know there's one place called the Jewel Heart Center there, but uh, the Tibetan center, but there are centers of Korean, there's uh, Sri Lanka, and there's like five or six different centers, and I'm sure they're all worthwhile. Okay. And then what was the other question? I'm sorry, Joe. Uh, as something as a good book to read. Text, uh, just on, on well, Joseph's book is very good. The heart of, what is it, Joseph? The heart of what? Wisdom. Well, it's the heart uh, of wisdom. It's a uh, Bantam paperback. That's a very good one. Adamapada, the sayings of Buddha. That's a nice one. And uh, and I like my book, Essential Tibetan Buddhism. Its introduction has, a, although it's on Tibetan later on, but introduction gives a good about eighty-page introduction to sort of basic all the different varieties of Buddhism. So all those, I would recommend all of those. I would even presume to recommend my own. Joe, you know this uh, version of the Dhammapada that Robert Thurman was talking about is um, very heavily annotated, and there's this commentary. So uh, there'll be a couple of verses put a, an idea into play, and then there'll be a couple of graphs of text right. explaining what the verse was getting at. So it's, uh, it's pretty easy for, uh, well, you and I, novices, to, uh, right. to 
understand what they were getting at. Yes, yeah, very well Cleary translated. Our Tom Cleary, Thomas Cleary is a wonderful translator, and he really did a beautiful job translating it. So, Joe, I, good luck. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Well, uh, one last question, because we're almost out of time. It's interesting okay. that uh, one place where there are hardly any Buddhists left is the home of Buddhism, India. What happened? Uh, well, it's a, it's a good question, but I think the main thing happened was Western invasions, and particularly uh, Islamic invasions at the end of the first millennium is the main thing that happened. Because Buddhism, since it was based on uh, big monastic universities, it, rather than based in the family, you know, and uh, when these invaders came in, they saw these big, huge universities with libraries and all these monks and nuns running around with these, uh, with these um, orange uh, robes and things. And they didn't have monks and nuns in, in Islam at that time. And they sort of wiped them out, you know. And Hinduism survived because it was based in the family, in the village, you see. But Buddhism's base, which was, it was as if you would come into America and knock out the university system, and uh, if there was a system that was interconnected with that, uh, strongly based in that, then that would get rid of that. Well, Robert Thurman... So I think Thurman, that's the real reason. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being with us. Sure. Thank you, Ray. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. And Joseph Goldstein, a pleasure to talk to you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. Joseph Goldstein is a teacher and founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and author of Insight Meditation. Robert Thurman is a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University in New York and author of Essential Tibetan Buddhism. Earlier, we heard from Yvonne Rand, Zen priest and meditation teacher in Muir Beach, California. And we'll continue our Sacred Text series next Tuesday with a discussion of the Torah. Join Talk of the Nation at this time tomorrow with guest host Jackie Lydon for a discussion about the new proposed rating systems for TV. In Washington, I'm Ray Suarez, NPR News. N Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.